CJSW's 2019 funding drive is now live. Pledge to this podcast by visiting cjsw.com slash donate. Welcome to Hearsay. I am really excited about today's episode. We have two awesome interviews lined up with provincial court judges. Last month, we talked about the federal judicial appointments process and the ways in which politics can shape and influence who ends up as a judge sitting on the bench. This month, we wanted to pull back the veil on the world of judging in a bit of a different way by talking to Judge Harry Van Harten and Judge Ann Brown about their path to the bench and their perspective from up there. I should say that both Judge Van Harten and Judge Brown are provincial court judges. Last month, we looked at the federal judicial appointment process. Judge Van Harten and Judge Brown's appointments were handled by provincial governments, but there are a number of similarities in the processes, which you will hear Judge Van Harten talk about in this interview. So without further ado, here is provincial court judge Harry Van Harten. Judge Van Harten, welcome to Hearsay. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Um, I wanted to start really generally. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in, I was born in New Westminster, uh, BC, and depending on what you're going to ask me about that, or I'll tie that into something else, but I grew up in uh, Surrey, BC, in the lower mainland of Vancouver. And I came out to Calgary in... Um, during my undergrad studies in about 1988. So having been here that long, I'm a native Calgarian now. It, it certainly starts to wrap you in. Uh, I myself grew up in Southern Ontario. I've just been out here for a couple years now. And uh, oh, there's something about it. Now there's something about the mountains, but I guess you, you grew up with that. Well, I came here chasing a job. I worked my way through uh, undergraduate uh, school doing construction work and um, I had a summer job with a company in Vancouver, and they said, if you want to keep at it, and it paid well enough back in the late 70s, that um, that I came out here. And maybe I said 88. I meant 78. So I'm that old, unfortunately. But I've, uh, so I've lived in Calgary full-time since 78. And what was it that brought you to law school originally? And here's the newest Minster connection. Um, Raymond Burr was a uh, Canadian actor who did very well in uh, in the United States on uh, two shows in particular, Perry Mason, which ran from about the year I was born until 1963 or 64, a black and white show about a Los Angeles defense lawyer. And he followed that up by um, a series called Ironside, which ran in the late 60s, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, as a young kid with one black and white TV in the house, I was fascinated by those shows, the investigative aspect of them, the involvement of the law and police work, which, of course, are still two themes which create legal drama nowadays. And uh, so in the back of my mind, I wanted to be that guy, Perry Mason. That's interesting. As Supreme Court Justice Moldaver gave a lecture here last year, and he uh, he also cited Perry Mason as an inspiration for his legal career. So, 
I guess you're in good company there, but also it's uh, it's a show that seemed to have some some impact. You know, and the formula was um, was pretty pretty standard. But given that I was, I, I started watching it with some understanding when I was six or seven years old, and of course, when Perry Mason, the bad guy, was always discovered, usually during the second thirty minutes. So. Uh, I don't think Perry Mason ever lost a case. I can't say the same for my own legal career as a defense lawyer, but that, I think, is, looking back on it, what hooked me and uh, always kept uh, a career in law at the back of my mind. And so as a practicing defense lawyer, did you have a specialty? Did you have a bread and butter, or was it a bit more general? No, I... I, uh, I was always a fan of uh, what the English call the uh, cab rank rule, that you should pick up the first passenger that you see on the roadside. Um, Except for ethical conflicts or other reasons, I never refused um, to take on a case. Although, as your uh, experience grows and your reputation grows, of course, people come to seek you out and... uh, and you land up perhaps doing, you know, more of one sort of a case than another sort of a case. One of my old partners, all he did, because he was very good at it, was uh, impaired driving cases. Um, I was never a specialist in that sense of it. Can you talk a bit about going through the process of, I guess, deciding at first that you wanted to apply to sit on the bench? And then, you know, how long did that take? One of my colleagues uh, made an application, and I'll talk about the process in a bit, to become a family and youth court judge, and uh, and that's what he is today. Uh, he had some political connections that I thought would make it impossible for me to become a judge. And in fact, it was only because of his encouragement and the encouragement of some other people that uh, I applied for the position. Uh, when you apply for a position on a provincial court judge in Alberta, you have to submit a formal application, which is a lot like a uh, templated resume. And um, when you do that, you're interviewed by an initial committee uh, that essentially uh, interviews you and, you know, get your assurance that there aren't any skeletons in your closet that might embarrass the court were you to be appointed. And um, anyone who um, is approved by that initial committee um, gets forwarded on to uh, a second interview by the uh, provincial court nominating committee, which consists of both lawyers and lay people. And, uh, and they can ask you all kinds of questions, not just about the cases that you've uh, done or judges that uh, you may have appeared in front of or references that you've given in your application. They can ask you about anything. I distinctly remember when I had that second interview, um, somebody on the committee asked me whether I was a dog owner. And uh, at the time I was, and I gave the details, but in the back of my mind I was thinking, hmm, this application isn't going anywhere fast. So um, it's that nominating committee that uh, gives you an approval or not approved 
rating, so to speak, and then your name goes into a pool, and when a vacancy comes up, um, the Minister of Justice, in consultation with the Cabinet, will uh, make a recommendation as to whether uh, any individual should be appointed. So, in recent years, the focus has been, obviously, on diversifying the bench, and uh, those are factors that are, uh, I think, more critical now than they used to be. So, I'm an older white guy, let's be honest, and uh, my chances of being appointed uh, today might be a little slimmer than they were almost nine years ago when I was appointed. Um, what's interesting is that when you're going through this process as a lawyer, it's something that you don't want to share, particularly as a defense lawyer, because if your clients come to understand that you might be jumping ship while you're acting for them, that could be a practice killer. So that uh, if you don't get the call and don't get the appointment, you want to be able to, you know, continue to have a viable practice. So it's a it's an awkward situation. Um, some people kind of advertise the fact that they're interested. I never did. Um, I told my partner of, at the time and a couple of other people that I was uh, making the application, not thinking I'd ever be appointed. But it was something that was kept within a circle of three or four people. And do you remember when you got the call? Well, I remember when I got the call. What I remember most was a very good... A lawyer friend of mine who did not know that I had made the application called me on the phone and said, so you got your name in to be a provincial court judge? And I said, well, how do you know that? And he goes, um, if I told you that, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> and so part of the process is um, the people that make these decisions don't just contact the people that you list. Uh, most of whom obviously will speak favorably of you, but they also will get in touch with people who you don't list, but who they have um, reason to believe would know you. And, uh, and that's how this individual found out. And it was a couple of weeks later that the minister uh, called me. I was sitting in my office. It's not every day you get a call from the Minister of Justice. And um, as soon as my uh, assistant told me that's who was on the other end of the line, I knew that my life would uh, soon undergo a radical change. And it did. And how was that transition process for you? How was it to go from defense counsel to now being the judge? Well, <clears throat> people ask me about that all the time. I always use the analogy of... Uh, uh, say, being a baseball player and then suddenly becoming an umpire. So for me, unlike some of my colleagues, it was um, fairly easy in the sense that I knew the rules of the game. I'd had 24 years of experience. So you go from being a player to um, calling balls and strikes. And uh, most of that is relatively easy, but it's on the close ones where you land up writing a decision or where the fans disagree with your call, or in my case, where the Court of Appeal uh, may disagree with your call. That, uh, that was the difference. Uh, the other thing, though, that I always tell people, there are two other things that, about becoming a judge after having been a lawyer. The first relates to, I think, being defense counsel. And that is that uh, 
when you're a defense lawyer, you are um, really taken up by your client's case. So even now, although it happens rarely, when somebody that used to be my client appears in my court, I immediately recognize either the name or the face, and I identify to the lawyers and to the person that's in front of me that there's this history and I may not be the best person to hear this case. Once you start being a judge, uh, that memory of an individual and their circumstances and what you're trying to do for them disappears. And I see lots of people in front of me uh, on a daily basis. And if you were in front of me today, a month later, I probably wouldn't remember you or the case. It's almost as if a different part of your brain in terms of memory kicks in. So that's one observation I always make. The other one is that judging isn't in some ways all that much different than lawyering. When you're a lawyer, you're arguing one side of the case or the other, and you're assembling the facts and everything about them in a way that's persuasive to your client's point of view, because that's why you're there. Um, when you become a judge, you're in a way, so in other words, when you're a lawyer, you're you're making the case and the argument, and someone else is making the decision. A judge makes a decision, but then also has the duty to explain how they arrived at it. And that explanation is, and, and especially in written judgments, uh, writing that explanation is not a whole lot different than writing the argument for one side or the other. So in the first sense, in terms of how your memory changes, it's quite a bit different. In the second sense, that is in explaining your decision, it's quite a bit like being a lawyer. Did your perspective on our justice system change when you started sitting behind the bench? Uh, not at all. I think uh, our justice system, by and large, and of course there's always issues about resources and all of that, hasn't changed at all. I think we have, and we're fortunate, and um, and I point this out whenever I do somebody's bar admission where you have to give a speech, but I always point out that the importance of the rule of law and having a system that uh, can deliver it, which I think we have, is as critical as having other sorts of social infrastructure, physical or otherwise. So having a good health care system, making sure everyone has enough to eat, making sure we have, uh, you know, decent roads and highways, um, having a, uh, a justice system that works well is as important as all of those other things. Um, in terms of having a, a a good place to live and a good society within which to live. So becoming a judge didn't change my perspective. It just gave me um, the opportunity to, um, to look at lawyers and assess lawyers' performances. It's funny, when you're a lawyer, you rarely get to see, other than your opponent on the other side, you rarely get to see other lawyers work because there's no time for that. When you're a judge, you have every day, all day to look at that. So that's given me some 
new ideas about advocacy and, you know, how to teach it and how people might become good advocates. Thank you again to Judge Van Harten. We're now going to go to an interview that my colleagues Jacob Stuckin and Gregory Radishich did with Provincial Court Judge Ann Brown. Judge Brown, would you be able to describe for us your career path and what led to you um, becoming a judge uh, in the first place? Sure. I began uh, my university life in Ontario, and I, my first degree was in economics. And when I finished that uh, degree, I went to England and worked for a year. And when I returned from England, I saw an ad for all sorts of positions at the Banff Springs. And I thought, well, if I don't get a real job, I could always uh, go to the mountains and ski and wash dishes for a year. So I came out to Alberta, and I really loved it here. Uh, so four years after coming to Alberta, I went to University of Calgary for law school because I'd always been interested in law. I think from the time I was a teenager, when I read the Stephen Truscott story, and it inspired me to uh, be a lawyer someday. So when I graduated from law school, I articled at a firm that at that time was called Walsh Young, and now it's Walsh Wilkins Creighton. It was a mid-sized litigation firm, and one of the attractions to articling and working there was that they also had a contract to prosecute drug offenses. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, I'd always been interested in criminal law. That was really my my big interest. So I had the fortunate ability to do some criminal defense work, do narcotics prosecutions, and some civil litigation. So including articles, I was there about five years. And uh, then I moved to the prosecution side. So I went to General Prosecutions of Alberta Justice, and I spent eight years there and did lots of lots of interesting work, um, yeah, some fascinating cases. And then I had a short stint uh, at the Alberta Securities Commission because the Securities Commission had just taken on prosecutions under the Securities Act. And having taken those on, they felt they needed some experienced prosecutors. Uh, so I went there for a while. Uh, but it was a bit of a shock to my system, because one of the first things I read was that the ordinary rules of evidence don't apply. Uh, so uh, after about three years there, I returned to prosecutions um, in the specialized prosecutions branch, and I became the province's first organized crime prosecutor. It was a really great position because it really pulled together various aspects of my career to that point. And I was there just under three years when I was appointed, and I had the great good fortune to be appointed to the criminal division. So that's... That's how I got there. Excellent. And you were appointed in 2003, correct? That's right. Excellent. And so now that you've had, um, I, I would say, a, a number of years on the bench, um, 
you know, have you had any experiences that have changed your outlook on the criminal justice system um, going from those roles to uh, now a role as a judge? I wouldn't say so, really, because I've always been of the view that prosecuting, which was the bulk of my career before I was appointed, is almost a quasi-judicial position. It's not the straight-on uh, acting for one side against the other that you find in civil litigation. The prosecutor owes a duty to many, many parties, including the accused and opposing counsel and the court. Mm-hmm. So the prosecutor has enormous authority. So I think when the prosecutor role is properly understood, it's not that big a uh, change to then be sitting on the bench. And I think I, I've been temperamentally well suited to to it because I'm I'm quite an even keel person. So temperamentally, I think it it wasn't any big stretch for me. And as you say, when the prosecutor's role is properly understood, it's not a big shift. And how has being on the provincial court in particular um, sort of enabled you to have, um, and, the, and these are my words, to have sort of a, a similar view, but to continue this judicial career uh, really at the what I would consider the front line of our criminal justice system, you know, being the court where a lot of the um, the day-to-day, um, you know, what people think of as standard criminal justice issues arise. How has that been for you? Oh, fabulous, because I, I really believe that uh, that's what criminal law is all about. It really is how a community lives together. I I often tell people that... Criminal law is really our most important and most fundamental law after the Charter uh, because it's uh, the law about which we're supposedly all agreed in terms of how, as individuals, we live in community with other people. So uh, I think it's such a privilege to be sitting there actually living that experience every day. So every accused person who appears before me, it's an opportunity to, to talk about what it means to have broken the criminal law and and how we how we move on from here and how uh, we continue to uh, live together in what is a marvelous community really uh, in Canada in Alberta in Calgary uh, we have the luxury of living in one of the best places in the world where civil society is still robust and healthy i'm i'm very interested to hear what your perspective is in terms of um, when you first got the notice that you're getting called to the bench, was it a sense of burden? Was it a sense of I've made it simply because within the system you have such a fundamental role as an adjudicator? It was a a feeling of tremendous excitement because I I could tell you I, I spent many years working in the courts, um, and I can't tell you the number of times I would leave the courtroom and I would hear 
some accused person ask his or her lawyer what just happened in there. And I think that is terrible. I think it means that uh, we're playing inside baseball, lawyers and judges. You know, we're speaking in code. We're not conveying the importance of the the big ideas that are borne out every day in a criminal courtroom. Uh, and judges and lawyers have a tendency to just treat uh, the types of cases that they see all the time as very routine. But it's hardly ever routine for the, uh, the accused person or for uh, witnesses who have an interest in the outcome of the, of the case. And uh, so I, I was very excited to try to do my part in reaching people who appear before me. Because I, I think it's so important that all those fundamental principles that anchor a really good criminal justice system are well known by the people who live in the community. Otherwise, um, civil society breaks down. And we're seeing examples of it all the time in the world today. And uh, you were saying that being an active listener was one of the most crucial things that you learned needed to be. You need to be on all the time. Were there any other qualities that you think make uh, or differentiate between a, a good judge and, and a, a great one? I think it's uh, very important to make a connection with every person who appears before me. Uh, and in most cases, if you make that connection, uh, then the results are, are good. You won't reach everybody for sure, but if you make the effort, and that means speaking directly to the person, uh, and being polite and respectful. Uh, I, I think uh, it goes a long way to making that connection and I think demystifying the system. I'll give you an example. I, I asked a couple of times after I'd mm, set out the conditions of a probation order, say, or a bail order, do you understand? And the person, of course, said yes. And I thought about that after a while, and I thought, well, it's such an intimidating situation. There you are standing up uh, in front of a, often a courtroom of strangers. Who is going to actually say, no, I don't understand? So after that, I, I only did that a couple of times, and after that I always asked, do you have any questions? And it's astonishing how many times someone will actually ask a very pertinent question that tells me that I did make that connection because obviously that person listened. So I, I think that's what's so important, um, making a connection, making the big abstract ideas that are so important in criminal justice meaningful in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, so bringing those big ideas home to the people who stand accused of having broken the criminal law.
did you feel that there were uh, certain qualities that you picked up from your the individuals who joined the bench maybe at the same time as you or around the same time as you? And to that, uh, to the same question, were there qualities that maybe you impressed on others that you felt allowed them to also be uh, effective adjudicators and educators? Well, I think the two big qualities are uh, humility and patience. Um, and uh, I always most admired uh, judges who exemplified those qualities it's a it's a big role so it's easy to get carried away with your own importance so humility is really I think the number one quality that person needs to have and patience uh, I don't I don't think anything is served by rushing through cases especially uh, if they are the type of cases that I mentioned earlier that for lawyers and judges are quite routine, say the umpteenth shoplifting or impaired driving or something like that, I don't think there is any usual case of its kind. So uh, I think it's important uh, to take the time and make sure that every person has been heard and that's the type of quality that I admire. And uh, on the other hand, I, I don't think it's right to treat things as ordinary cases of the kind and that type of thing. Also, I think plain language is really important. Um, I don't um, I don't favor speaking in code or. Uh, we have a tendency. In, as lawyers and judges to talk about Form 12 and Form 32 uh, uh, and use all sorts of abbreviations when we're doing bail hearings. Right. Uh, that's, it's, it can be meaningless uh, unless, uh, unless you take the time to ex explain to a person what, uh, what this all means about the, the terms on which you're going to be released. So thank you very much for coming in. I know we've really enjoyed the opportunity to have you here and to hear just a bit about uh, your story and everything you've had to share with us. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode of Hearsay was created by Jacob Stuckin, Gregory Radishich, Albert Brown, and me, Marcus Trendle, at CJSW Studios at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 land. Hearsay is a pro bono students Canada project you can find on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, and most other places that you get your podcasts. It is Funding Drive Month here at CJSW. Visit cjsw.com to support the best independent radio station between the Pacific and the Atlantic. We'll be back next month.